How many of you have heard the uh, phrase before, there's an elephant in the room? You've heard that one before? Well, there's six of them in here if you've figured that out. Some of you may have um, blocked view, but there, there is one on the ledge back here. So if you were counting all of them, there, there are six of them. Um, kind of a fun way to launch our uh, new worship series, Elephants uh, on the Loose. Uh, you know, the, the phrase, there's an elephant in the room, uh, it's kind of a metaphorical idiom um, for an obvious truth. Usually it's a problem or a situation uh, that is either being intentionally uh, ignored uh, or just flat out unaddressed. Uh, it's a large issue that nobody seems to want to talk about or, you know, get within uh, a close radius uh, at all. And so the, the series that, that we're beginning is Elephants uh, on the Loose. Uh, let's talk about them. There are some very polarizing issues, uh, current issues, uh, that I think the church in general, tends to be very leery of, of talking about. And these are the elephants in the room. Some of them are uh, science, uh, politics, uh, the idea of religious freedom, uh, sexual expression in our culture, uh, gay marriage, immigration, uh, addressing poverty, um, addressing sex trafficking that's going on. Uh, these are all very relevant, hot topic current issues that, that we're facing these days. And it really, over the next four weeks, we together are going to address some of these elephants uh, that are running loose uh, in our culture, because I don't, I don't think that we can ignore them. Um, I think that we must uh, enter into dialogue on the most challenging issues uh, of our day. I believe that we must look to Scripture um, to find truth uh, in how we may develop a Christian outlook and worldview when we talk about these issues. I think that we need to proclaim the truth boldly, yet I think we need to do it um, with as much love, which is, with as much compassion, and with as much grace as we know how to do. I remember when Jesus was practicing His ministry, Matthew 9, I think it's verse 36 or so. It's kind of a summary statement that Matthew makes on Jesus' ministry, and says that He looks out over the crowds and he sees them as lost sheep who have gone astray. And Matthew says that he had compassion on them. That he saw their deep need. And I think if we look at the balance of Jesus' ministry, he was able to speak truth into people's lives that was very grace-filled and loving. It didn't water down his message. His message was still extremely pointed. Yet he was able to do it and uh, 
in a grace-filled, loving way. And, and my prayer is that as we address these issues and we come up with uh, our Christian worldview and, and talk about that openly in public, that we would be able to do so uh, in a way that mimics uh, Jesus. So I believe in, in Scripture that we can uh, discover uh, truth and, and direction for, for really any situation that we'll face in life. Um, Paul, in his letter to Timothy, we looked at it a little bit last week, um, Paul warns Timothy that people, when they're left to themselves, uh, will take the easy road. They will want a feel-good message where all the pointed edges are sanded down and smooth. Uh, their ears want to hear things that please them. The, when, and when we don't hear things that please us, that we're likely... Uh, to move on or to stop listening altogether. And when the messages become just a little bit too challenging um, and the demands of the gospel are uh, too great, that sometimes we become uh, distracted and we begin to accept a more watered-down version. And the truth will soon be traded for myth or just flat-out lies. We, we finished a series last week on, on this old book. It was a five-week series looking uh, specifically at, uh, at the Bible uh, itself. And uh, in that series, we set up the case that the Bible presents us the truth uh, of God. And uh, I was, there was one quote that I had held over that I thought maybe would be a good way of, of launching this series uh, author Frank Moore, he says, the Bible represents final authority for Christians. We believe it presents God's will for our lives and has the right to define what we should believe and how we should live. This opposes the spirit of our age, which demands individual freedom to think and act any way that we want. Such a view argues against objective truth and an objective standard of right and wrong. It wants neither the government, the laws of the land, the church, nor God acting as final authority for personal conduct. Individual freedom receives that authority. As Max Stirner said, if it is right to me, it is right. Or as one of my students put it, truth is whatever I want it to be. Christians reject such a subjective view and affirm that God the Creator has the right to ultimate authority. He declared His plan, purpose, and will for us in the life and ministry of His Son, Jesus Christ. The Bible records it for us. The Bible, then, is the final authority for the faith and practice of Christians. It tells us what Jesus wants us to believe and do. So as we launch into this new series, this is kind of the foundational point from which we begin that we, we've set up uh, over the last five weeks. And so in, in this series... Uh, I'm asking all of us to be willing to think deeply. My goal is not to tell you what to think or necessarily what to believe. My, my goal in the next four weeks is to point all of us towards Scripture so that together we can discover uh, what the gospel may call for. There's an old saying that there are two topics that you should never 
ever discuss in public religion and politics. Well, I guess we're going to ignore that today. Uh, I know why this is suggested. Uh, these two subjects, religion and politics, they usually stir up some pretty deeply rooted emotion in us. Uh, we have strong opinions uh, about one or the other or, or both, uh, and we're, deep in, we're deeply passionate about these subjects. They're things we care about, and really they're things that we just don't want other people to challenge us on. Uh, I've been in that argument before. But not only are we going to talk about them in public, we're going to talk about both of them in church. <laughs> I know. Now, I know that uh, there are at least three groups of people here. I was, I've done a lot of reading over the last weeks leading up to this series, and, and one author I appreciated uh, some of his perspective, his name's Chip Ingram, uh, he identifies the three groups. He says that there's a group... Uh, the first group is people who never talk about politics in church. Their opinion is you just don't do it flat out, period, end of story. That faith is a private matter, and there should be a clear delineation between what is sacred and what is secular. Uh, that we should buy into the notion that uh, every idea has equal value and it is intolerant to suggest that one idea is better than another. Uh, so these, this first group of people, uh, we'll put them on this side over here, uh, that the conversation on politics should just never happen in the context of ministry of the church, that we should just focus on Jesus. Well, let me tell you, Jesus was a very political dude. Uh, the second group of people, so we have this group over here, and the second group of people is, is over on, on this side over here, and this is the opposite group of people, that some view church as a place where uh, God's people can come together and gain political momentum, that we should use church as a platform for our politics so that we can send out the Christian message uh, out into the world and that the church can be used as a place to inform you on how to vote and who to vote for. Um, then there's a third group of people that's somewhere in the middle. Uh, some of the people in the middle have never considered either of these two polarities, and you're like, huh, I never thought about it like that. Um, what I, want, I, don't, I don't want to play either of those games. Uh, my goal this morning is maybe to take a little bit different perspective on this. What I, what I want to do is to look at some of the challenges that we are facing in our political system uh, and in society in general and see if that there is an actual Christian perspective that may help solve some of the issues. And I realize, you know, looking at the clock, that there's no way that I could say everything that I might want to say uh, this morning. Uh, so I'll start with this. I don't think, looking out at all of you, I don't think that I need to spend a lot of time convincing you that our political system is at best strained and at worst divided and fractured. I mean, at times the American political system 
just seems to be something that tears our nation apart instead of bring it together. Uh, it stirs up anger. It's divisive. Um, politics are touchy subjects in many circles. Um, many of the issues that we face are polarizing. Um, the campaign seasons that happen every two years uh, are long. They're trying. They really expose the ugly underbelly of much of humanity. Uh, we sink millions of dollars into advertising, most of which seems to be spent uh, and directed at trying to tear the other side down instead of build any one side up. See, see what's happened is, in my estimation, is we, we've lost the ability to, to discuss and to dialogue with each other. Instead of coming together at table, we would rather erect a wall between us and, and not really address what's going on, on on the other side of the aisle. The, the current mode of communication, then, is to lob word missiles over that wall, trying to destroy the other side, to uh, post Facebook memes that are hateful and, and demeaning as a way of shutting the other side down. It's hard, it seems, to have healthy conversation these days, especially when it's dealing with those who may have a, a differing view from us. Um, our words, our actions, our behavior, they have, they have the power to divide and polarize. Politics is a subject that can bring a lot of pain. But those same things can also be used for health and encouragement. So I've been wondering, is there a better way than, than what we've been doing? I'm not saying that we shouldn't argue. I'm not saying that we shouldn't debate, sometimes even passionately, because I think this is a way that we seek what is best for the whole. It's the way that healthy democracies work. Great good can come when we try to solve problems that come to our attention. But each of us comes at a problem from our own vantage point. They're our own way of seeing and viewing and perceiving the world. But from each of our positions, we all have blind spots as to how our position affects another. And so I believe that healthy conversation and dialogue is necessary so that we can expose each other's blind spots and maybe together we can come to better solutions that are stronger and much wider ranging. So as I've been thinking, uh, I've been asking the question, why isn't our system working well right now? And, and here's a couple of my observations. The first one is, we all, or many of us, have plugged ears. Uh, we have an unwillingness to listen to the other side. See, democracy works best when, when people listen to each other and when we allow each other to add to the conversation. See, together we can discern right solutions, but, you know, we're not really in favor of doing this today. 
We convince ourselves that, that we are right, and when our ideologies and our presuppositions are challenged, well, we bristle up, we harden, we become more rigid, the hair on the back of our neck stands up, and we dig in for a fight. And, and so what happens is we put our finger in, fingers in our ears like this, and we go, la, 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 whenever the other side is trying to present what they believe and what they think. Of course, we want people to listen to our ideas, so we start to talk louder and louder, to over-talk the other side, but we're less willing to have other people share their ideas. See, our opinions and positions, have we see them as being so right that they're hard and fast and rigid. So when we're not listening, discussions and debates um, must have a clear winner. We play to win the game, which means that if there is a clear winner, there's another side, right? That there has to be a clear loser in the conversation. And so we tend to shoot down other people's ideas without taking time to understand because we need to win the argument. And I remember advice from our brother James. James chapter 1, verse 19. It's an easy one to memorize. He says, uh, be quick to listen. Be slow to speak. Be slow to become angry. See, James gives us a grace pace for communication. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. But it seems these days we have that turned around, an opposite. Our conversations are adversarial, and when that happens, uh, we're likely to be slow to listen and quick to speak and really quick to become angry. Stephen Covey in his national bestseller, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, uh, he says that we need to build the habit of first seeking to understand into our communication strategy. And when we take the time to listen, when, when, we, when we are quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry, communication, it takes a lot longer. It's messier. It's harder. It takes a lot of patience. But I think we need to unplug our ears and, and start listening to each other. The second observation that I, that I have is that I think some of us have stopped viewing our opponents as people. We tend to dehumanize uh, our adversaries, which makes it really easy for us to attack them. Uh, it makes it really easy for us to demean them, call them names, and diminish them as people. And modern media hasn't helped in that. It's very easy to attack our opponents from the comfort and confines of our living room through internet blogging and Facebook posts and emails and so forth. See, we, we have modern media allows us to remove personal confrontation uh, from the mix. Um, 
we no longer have to have face-to-face -face communication. We can avoid that altogether. And instead, we launch these media missiles, uh, and many times they're hurtful. And many times they're inaccurate. Uh, facts are wrong. We see something and it tantalizes us and, and it gets inside us and we think, ooh, that is just such a juicy little morsel. That's going to knock the other side down. And we're quick to forward that stuff on or, or repost it on our Facebook without actually going and checking to see if it's actually true. It's called slander. Um, and, and part of this is um, much of this alarmist kind of communication. I think it's really meant to breed a sense of fear in people and convince people that, that they need to protect themselves from all of the bad stuff that will happen if so-and-so is elected. And it's really hard for us as Christians to participate in this game and still call ourselves as follower of Christ because Jesus says, what? Love our enemies, pray for those who hurt us means we're not in the business as Christ followers of being people who seek to make enemies. And when we communicate with this strategy, when we dehumanize our opponents, we're making enemies out of them. And that's just not a Christ-like way to live. We have, we have some politicians in our midst. Uh, and I know, I know them to be very intelligent, very well-meaning followers of Jesus Christ. And they honestly seek to do what is right and what is best for our community. And we need to stand alongside them and support them. We may not always agree, but they are our brothers and sisters in Christ and I know that being a public figure and enduring the criticism and the slander, it's mentally, it's physically, it's emotionally, and it's spiritually draining. It's hurtful, and it's just not right. One more thing before we move on to potential solutions is politics is not religion. Whatever your political leanings are, they're just political. Uh, in politics, we're not dealing with absolutes. In faith and religion, we are. Our political system is not set up to be God's side versus the opponents of God's side. See, religion helps put politics in, its, in proper perspective. Uh, as Christians, we believe that we are citizens of, of two kingdoms, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, and, and of course, the, the society in, in which we live. But God is our supreme ruler. We follow him, we follow his agenda, but we also realize that we live in a world where we need to be good, law-abiding citizens. See, religion helps us bring to bear what we believe about God and how he would have us live in this world into our political choices and decisions. For example, uh, 
Christianity first calls us to think about others before ourselves. And so when we take that truth out of the Bible, that we should be other-focused before we're self-focused, uh, that means that life isn't primarily about us. The world says otherwise. Um, but we then need to think about public policy that addresses maybe others' needs first before our own. Let's get a little touchy. So, what do we do? With a system that is flawed and divisive, uh, how do we function as Christians in this system? So there's, there's two points, or maybe two pokes, and a challenge that I have. Uh, how should Christians live and function and participate in this political climate? We turn to the message of the cross, God's power demonstrated through weakness. The gospel tears down all of the walls that we are really good at putting up. And Paul gives us some help uh, in two passages that I want to look at specifically this morning. The first one, if you have your Bibles or your devices, uh, turn with me to uh, Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church. So 1 Corinthians will be in the first chapter. I'm going to read you a, a couple of the verses here, verses 10 through 12. Notice, and, and the, the Corinthian church had some problems. They had a lot of issues to deal with. But it's interesting to me that before Paul addresses some of the other issues like um, sex, sex and culture and interacting with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, and, you know, they got into squabbles about how you're supposed to take communion, and there's all sorts of problems within the Corinthian church. The very first one that he addresses is division in their midst. He says, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Wow. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you, what I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, another, I follow Cephas, and still another, I follow Christ. So the first point that I gather out of this is that if you can't play nice in church, you're probably not going to be able to play nice in any other part of your life either. If you can't get it right in church, then you're probably not going to get it right as you go out uh, into your place of business, into your homes, and in, into your community. So what's the problem in Corinth? Uh, they had a party spirit. Now, it was a party town, uh, but we're not talking about having a big kegger here. What we're talking about is factions, divisions in their midst. Paul uses the word here, uh, schisma, which means to, to tear apart, like tearing fabric apart. Or in the, in the metaphor of the day, it's also a word that is used in the Gospels to describe fishing nets that had been torn apart. And a fishing net is useless if it's got holes in it. 
And so they would mend those back together. Schisma. The church was coming apart at the seams. They had divided opinions that led to fractures uh, in their fellowship. And let me tell you, these divisions, they weren't over theological issues at all. See, people in the church were forming parties based on their personal preferences. We've never seen that before, have we? In this case, their personal preferences were for the various teachers and apostles that would come and interact with, with their church. Paul, Apollos was a, a preacher and teacher from Alexandria in, in Egypt, and he was a great speaker, well thought, and, uh, and so some people preferred Apollos teaching to Paul. As we're told, Paul wasn't really a great speaker. He was a deep thinker, and he had a lot of good things to say, but he didn't present it so well. Apollos, on the other hand, wow, he was polished, and he looked good, I bet, and, and people just liked that. And so there were fractures in this church because there was this party spirit that people started to divide up. And, and this was kind of rooted in the culture of the day. In that Greek culture, uh, Corinth had been destroyed uh, and, and Rome rebuilt the city about 100 years later. And so it was a Roman city in a Greek culture. And the people of, of that city, it was a very cosmopolitan place, uh, kind of on the, the main trade routes, north and south, and, and uh, there was a lot of uh, sea traffic in there. So this was a happening place. And in the culture of the day, there were, their celebrities, if you will, were called sophists. Now these were, the best way to describe them, they're just professional smart people. And, and what would happen is these sophists would go around and they would uh, gain an audience and they would present an idea, they would, they would do a TED talk for, you know, a little bit, and then people would just flock to them and gather around, and this was the sport of the day, they, they would gather and then, and then they would have vigorous debate afterwards. So this is a culture that was deeply rooted in, in their society, and, and Paul noticed that it was infiltrating into the church. And instead of focusing all their attention on Jesus and the message of the cross, they were starting to make factions and parties and divisions in the church because, well, man, I like Paul. Yeah, Apollos, Apollos he's preaching today. I'm not going to show up. I'm going to wait till Paul's back in the pulpit. Or if they liked um, Apollos, then, uh, you know, Brother Paul, I don't want to listen to him. You know, we got a guest guy in here. We're going to wait until Apollos comes back before we sit through a worship service again. And Paul looked at that, and he said, that's just flat out wrong. There should be no division like that among you. We should be unified in Christ. The people were straying from the truth that Christ alone is the wisdom and the power of God. They forgot that Jesus was to be the focus of their faith, not their personal desires or, or preferences. So Paul suggests unity to the people of Corinth. And we have the opportunity to practice this same agreement and unity today in our fellowship. If you look around, you see a lot of people. We, we all come from various places and walks of life. 
Each of us thinks differently. We have our own opinions and ideals and, and, and ideas on how we should do things. And sometimes they all don't agree. But Paul says, when you come together in the body of Christ, that you can lay aside personal preference and difference in opinion for the sake of the unity of the church. Division, division in church will not lead you to unity anywhere else in life. If you practice party behavior, uh, factions inside these walls, you're likely to do the same thing in other areas of your life, to always be people who take sides, never bring people together, always looking to tear apart. And in this church, we're really trying to discern God's will together. We seek to bring God glory, not ourselves. And sometimes to do this, we have to lay aside personal desires for the benefit of the whole and the fulfillment of the vision and the mission of the church. And when decisions don't go our way, Paul says we're not allowed to pout about it. And if we do, he suggests that that's just spiritual immaturity. I've been in the ministry long enough that I've, I've seen this happen. One of the former places, it's been enough years, so I think I can talk about it. One of the former places where we served, uh, there had been some staffing changes and transitions. And there was just a group of people who, for whatever reason, and they had them, they, they just weren't happy with new leadership. They weren't thrilled with direction uh, that they thought the church was going. And, and they made the decision that they would essentially boycott worship. Sure, they would show up for Sunday school class, but then you'd see them leaving, and they would go and they would gather around uh, a former displaced staff person and have their own little worship gathering. That's exactly what Paul is talking about here. That party spirit, that party mentality that first seeks to divide because of a personal grievance and opinion instead of bringing the church together and rising above personal opinion once in a while for the benefit of the whole. It's not healthy to divide. Paul's upset because the Corinthians are bowing to the culture around them. What's happening outside the church was filtering its way in. And he says, you're better than that. You can be better than that in Christ. When Christ is your all in all, you will come together and be unified. He didn't say you all had to think the same thing. There can be unity without uniformity. We can all share a different opinion, but for the sake of the whole, we can lay those aside and we can come together and we know that we can air our differences of opinion and we can talk about them even in heated manners sometimes. But when we leave that room, we can go out carrying the same flag. And that's the flag of Jesus, not 
of Paul or Apollos or Cephas or Dave or anybody else. Second thing, I think we're doing all right on time. Uh, As you practice this, as you stand up for the gospel and its message and the ways that it calls us to live, as you bring your faith to bear on the political choices and ideologies, uh, the things that you back and support, some people aren't going to agree with you. In fact, they're going to flat out disagree with you, and you are going to come under attack. The gospel is offensive to those who are perishing. They don't get it, and they don't want a supreme authority making any claims on how they should live. So, so here's the second point. Don't be quick to offend somebody else, and don't be quick to take offense yourself. See, mature believers will seek not to offend and will not take offense where offense is not intended. Don't respond like the world responds. Don't play the game the world plays. Paul again gives us some wisdom uh, on this thinking, and I want you to flip over to another one of his letters. It's in Ephesians. And I want to read some verses uh, starting in chapter 4, verse uh, 22. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger... Do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs." that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example. Literally there, it says, imitate God. Therefore, as dearly loved children... And walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. One of my favorite authors, N.T. Wright, great thinker. He says of this passage, and, and you can get the sense that there's a lot about kindness in this passage. He asks these questions. How would it be if God were the kind of God who was always making snide or bitter remarks at us? He asks, what would worship and prayer be like if we thought God had been talking about us behind our backs, putting us down to other people? Or or how would it feel if God was always losing his temper with us or criticizing what we were trying to do and accomplish? Well, 
Maybe we should consider how people might feel if this is what we were like. Negativity and criticism only drive wedges further in and and divide people further. Affecting change is not likely to happen when you practice diminishing somebody else. Paul says to imitate God. And through this passage, he gives us so many different ways on on what that looks like, the how-to and the how not to do that. He says to grow up in our thinking, come to a place of spiritual maturity. Know yourself and and consciously choose to, uh, to respond in love and kindness. It's part of the sanctification process. This is the part of the process by which we become more and more Christ-like, to discipline ourselves, to respond as Jesus would respond. As Paul says, speak the truth to your neighbor. Speak truth to one another. He doesn't say to ignore it or to avoid it or to let it slide, but do it in a loving way, he says. Don't try and offend somebody else. He says we need to be able to listen to others when they disagree without rising up and taking personal offense and lashing out in anger then. He says it's okay to be angry, a righteous anger, but he says don't sin in your anger. Do not seek to diminish another person. Rather, build them up, encourage them with love and with kindness. Your words give you the opportunity to bring God's grace to people by what you say and and how you say it. He says, no unwholesome talk should come out of your mouth. The the word there for unwholesome is putrid. It's, It's like what you find in that container that's been in the refrigerator for six months and you just discover that it's still there and you open it up and oh my goodness, putrid. Don't let that spew out of your mouth. Build one another up. Okay. I think we need to realize that there's an element of truth, there's an element of goodness, uh, there's an element of genuineness to do what is right, and there's, a, there's an ignorance and error and pride on both sides of the political divide. So let's pray for each other. Let's pull together. Let's come to the table to talk. Let's listen to one another and and truly seek what's best for our fellowship, for our community, for for our country. And that leads into the challenge. Here's the challenge. There's four parts to the challenge. One is pray for your leaders as we are instructed to do in Scripture. Two, be informed and involved in the political process and exercise your right to vote. How do you decide who to vote for? There's lots of ways. You know, there's all sorts of voters' guides that are published. Most of them have some political bent in them. Um, my former pastor and mentor, Dan Boone, he, he, uh, he wrote a book called Charitable Discourse. And in that book, he has a list of questions by which we can evaluate candidates. I want to read a couple of them to you. You can ask yourself, under which leader is the world most likely to be at peace? Under which leader will the people of God have the most freedom to carry out the agenda of the kingdom of God? 
Under which leader will fragile persons be given the aid they need to become whole again and then be expected to live as responsible citizens? Under which leader will I be expected to be more responsible citizen in my community rather than a dependent consumer of government goods? He has several more that are in there. The third part of the challenge is this. Stand up and be counted for what you believe the gospel calls for. There is a time to speak the gospel message and what we believe that is uh, and how that would come to bear on the current issues of our day. There is a time to stand up and talk. And the fourth thing is, do all this in a way that imitates God. Love. Listen. And speak truth with grace and love and compassion. People of God said, mm, amen.